Masechet Ketubot, Daf Yod Tet, we're continuing to speak about various cases of document authentication that witnesses, uh, when someone presents a document to the Betin, uh, they have to authenticate that the witnesses actually signed it, either by the witnesses coming or by comparing their signatures to other documents or other people that say, yes, we recognize it. Uh, but these cases are where the witnesses come and they say, yes, we signed it, but they add a stipulation, we were minors or we were uh, uh, relatives or we were under duress. That's the cases we spoke about yesterday. We saw the opinion of Rabbi Meir that says we do not accept the conditions of the witnesses. Um, in other words, as long as we know that it is their signature, uh, then we ignore the, sta- the statement that they said, oh, but, but it was under duress. Uh, why did Rabbi Meir said that? We explained it according to Rav's statement, who says that If a borrower says, yeah, I wrote that document, then you don't even have to bother authenticating the witnesses, because the borrower himself said, yeah, I wrote it. And therefore, the same would be true if witnesses came and said, that is our signatures, but we just stop them right there and say, we don't care about the but. If you admit that this is your signature, then that's it. The, the signatures, the document speaks for itself. And we don't listen uh, to the statement that they said they are under duress. The document is, in fact, valid. Okay, that was the opinion of Rabbi Meir against Chachamim, who say that we do take into account uh, their, um, their conditions in some cases. So now, Gufa, now we're going to analyze the statement of Rav more in depth. Amarav Huna Amarav, Modeh Bishtah So they say, if the borrower comes and says, yeah, I wrote that, then the lender doesn't have to bother bringing witnesses to authenticate it. So Rav Nachman tells Rav Huna, who said this, this halacha, the name of Rav, uh, of Rav, and says, why are you acting like a thief? In other words, how come you're saying um, that the, the bottom line is that you don't have to authenticate a document as long as either the borrower said he wrote it or the witnesses say that it is, it is their signature, but we don't care about the but. I see that you're actually saying halachas like Rabbi Meir because we just established that um, Rabbi Meir is assuming Rav and so Rav is following Rabbi Meir. Um, so why are you saying that the halacha is that, yeah, it doesn't need authentication, we accept the document without and we ignore the conditions. Why, what you really mean to say is you're saying halachas like Rabbi Meir, but I know that you are acting like a thief, you don't want to say so directly because nobody wants to admit that they're following the minority opinion of Rabbi Meir against Chachamim. So they're saying, I follow the opinion that says we uh, trust the document. Yeah, what you really mean is you're following a minority opinion. So that's Rav Nachman's attack. It seems his attack is twofold. Number one, that you're not being honest with everyone and just say, I'm following a minority opinion. And second is that he's following a minority opinion. He says that should not be the halacha. So, if that's what you think could be made, say so. Obviously, you're embarrassed to, to, to say so. So, Rav Huna, who said the name of Rav, Rav Huna asks Rav Nachman, okay, what do you think, Rav Nachman? And he says, well, I disagree with you. If someone brings a document before us, first I tell them, go ratify the document um, and then come for judgment. In other words, yes, we do have to ratify a document, even if 
the, uh, even if the borrower says that I wrote it, we still tell him to go and ratify it because if the, uh, if the borrower says I wrote it, but I paid back, Right then, we have we still have a problem. Uh, but if we ratify, and he won't have to pay because he he's a pesha sadu a peshiitir. But if we ratify it independently, then we we will make the borrower uh, come and pay. So in other words, we tell the lender don't rely on the admission of the borrower. Rather, get it authenticated independently, and then the case will go much smoother. Uh, so we see that he does not agree, Rav Nachman does not agree with the statement of Rav Huna, Amar Rav, and he says we should authenticate it no matter what. And then the same would be true regarding the witnesses that just because they said we wrote it uh, doesn't automatically authenticate it. We're going to listen to the whole thing. Like Chachamim say, we will take into account if they say it's under duress. All right, now that we mention one statement, another statement of Amar Rav Yehuda, Amar Rav, another statement in the name of Rav, Amana is document of trust. A couple of different explanations. It could be any of these. One explanation is, let's say um, uh, you asked me for a loan. So I said, no problem. I'm, I'm going to give you the money. I just don't have the cash right now. But I'll tell you what. Give me the IOU today, right? And I'll hold on to the loan document that says you owe me money. And tomorrow I'll pay you the ca- I'll give you the cash that, for the loan. And so you give me an IOU. So now I have a document against you, and I never give you the I never actually give you the cash for the loan. This is how she explains it. So now I have a loan document against you, even though you never got the money. Uh, so this is a false doc. It's a false document. It says that you owe me money, even though we don't really. Another possible explanation is: Let's say I'm going to go into a business deal tomorrow, and I want to show that my the, the partners that I'm wealthy even though I'm not so wealthy. So I might come to you and ask you for a favor. Hey, can you uh, write an, an, IOU for, uh, an IOU and give it to me that says that you owe me uh, a lot of money? And that way um, I can show it to the other partners. Says, Look how rich I am. See, this guy owes me $1,000. That guy owes me $1,000. I have all these IOUs. And I said, just, you know, it's on trust that I'm not actually going to ask you for the money. I just want to show that I have accounts receivables. And so this also is a false document. So here's the here's what Av says. If someone claims that, yeah, there's an IOU here, but it was just based on a trust issue and actually the money was never taken and was never owed, he's not believed, right? But uh, rather, if you have such a document, you can use it and the person will have to pay. Okay, now we ask, who is claiming that this is a document of trust? If it's the borrower that says, oh, that document, the IOU you have against me, that's just a document of trust. And I never actually received the money, I don't have to pay. Are we going to believe the borrower? If we're going to believe them, then every borrower would say, oh, that's a, it's a false document. So obviously it can't be the borrower. And if it's the lender that says, oh, I have an IOU against you, but you only gave it to me on trust and you don't have to pay me. Okay, good. So if the lender is willing to forego payment, let him get a blessing. Right? We don't, uh, uh, there's no reason not to believe him. Rather, it must be that the witnesses say, well, yeah, we signed this document, but when we signed the document, we knew, they, they, they said, 
that this is just a trust document and uh, that money will never actually have to be paid. Well, let's see. If we can authenticate their signatures independently, then we won't, are not going to accept their testimony to say it's only a trust document. The document stands alone because independently verifiable. And if we cannot authenticate their signatures from any other place, any other friends who, who, who recognize their, their, test, their signatures or comparing them, uh, then we should believe those witnesses because they're the ones that said it is our signatures thereby authenticating the document and they're also the ones that said it was only written on trust and it was never really payable. So then they should be believable. So what case exactly here are we talking about that Rav uh, said his statement? Okay, we're going to give three answers. All, including all possibilities. The siman is ba'ash. Uh, ba, the bet stands for rava. Uh, Aleph stands for abaye, and shin stands for rav asher. And they're going to actually bring up possible cases for all three uh, variations. Amarava leolam tekamar love. In fact, maybe it is the borrower. Uh, when we asked them, yeah, but the borrower we can't trust. Ukzeravuna. The statement that we began with, where Ravuna says, in the name of Rav, that if the borrower uh, agrees, uh, admits that, yes, I wrote, I, I, this is my signature, then you do not have to authenticate it. So in this case, the borrower is, on the one hand, saying, yes, I admit I wrote it, but he's also saying, even though I wrote it, it was only a document of trust. And so therefore, he, we will, uh, we, you might think that we would accept it uh, because he's, after all, the one that authenticated it. But the halakha that we're learning from Rav Yehuda Amarav is that we do not accept it, even though he is the one who, is, uh, who has authenticated the document. He's not trusted to say that it's a document of trust. That's the first response, and that explains why what the chidush is in Rav Yudah's statement. Second, maybe in fact it's the lender that says, and we asked about that, well, if he foregoes and says you don't have to pay, that should be fine. Oh, but it still could be relevant, um, and uh, actually he's not believed, right? Uh, even though he's foregoing his own payment, he's actually not trusted. For example, in a case where the lender himself is also a borrower, he also owes money to someone else. And it's, it would follow the statement of Rabbi Natan, the Tanya, Rabbi Natan Omer. For example, you have a case where uh, A lent money to B and B lent money to C. So now uh, C has to pay back B who will pay back A. So how do we know that in such a case that what we do is, well, the Betin can go to C and say, hey, take that money. Instead of paying B and relying on B to pay back A, just pay A back directly and skip over B. And do, that's something you can do because the Pasuk says, give it to the one who is owed. And since A is owed money, so you know what, C? Just give it all the way back to A. And that is valid. So we're talking about a case like that. So now if B is the one that tells, uh, tells C, hey, you have this, I have this IOU against you, but you know what? You don't have to pay it. It was a document of trust. 
Before we said, oh, Tavala Bracha, but now we're saying, no, not Tavala Bracha. By B, by foregoing the payment and saying this is only document trust and you never had to pay it, what A is actually doing is preventing A from getting paid, right? Because if B, C owes B money, then C can give it all the way back to A. But once B says you don't have to pay, then C is not going to have an obligation to pay the money back to A. And so by C foregoing, no Bracha, because he's preventing A from getting paid. And so that would be a case where A can come and claim and says, no, you, that, you, that was not a document of trust. You really have to pay it. C, you have to pay B, and therefore, just pay me directly. Okay. Rav says, no, in fact, it's the witnesses that said, yeah, we signed it, but um, this was a document of trust, and he doesn't have to pay. And we're, what if we're talking about a case where we were not able to authenticate it from another place, and so therefore you would think that we should believe the witnesses. So how come uh, Rav Yudar Amar have said we don't believe them? And the reason why we don't believe them, even though you could say, because they're the ones that authenticate their signature, so they should be believed to say it's a document of trust. We don't because Rav Kana taught that there's a prohibition. One is not allowed to keep a document of trust in the house. This is a document that says you owe me money, even though you don't really owe me money. And me, by keeping that document around, that's raising the possibility that I'm actually going to use this document one day. And so that is an injustice against the Pasuk in Iyov, let not injustice dwell in your tents. Don't even have that uh, false document around. And therefore the witnesses, they sinned in, 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 uh, 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 in, in signing such a document. And so this is self-incriminating by coming and saying, yeah, this is a document that we, uh, that we signed, therefore we reject their testimony. We don't believe them when they say it was a document of trust uh, because th- that would violate a prohibition. And in fact, the son of Rav Idi said, we can learn from the words of Rav Kana that if the witnesses say that when we signed the document, this was based, this was um, uh, a document of trust, that we do not believe them. It's an injustice to sign such a thing. Therefore, we can't believe them to say that they did something in unjust, because if it's true that they did something unjust, then they are Rishaim, and the testimony of Rishaim is not believed, so we reject the testimony that they just said when they said that we did something evil. And therefore, it is a good document and it can be used. We gave three answers to that, and now we're going to continue on the same theme of a problem of keeping false documents in one's home. So Rabbi Yosheh Ben-Levi says, one is not allowed to keep a, uh, a, a repaid uh, IOU in his house. In other words, um, I, uh, you paid me back, and then I uh, kept the IOU. I was like, oh, I don't know, I don't know where the IOU is. I'll, uh, I'll give it to you tomorrow. I keep the IOU in my house, even though you already paid me back. This is a false document, and it's always going to give the possibility that maybe I'll forget, or maybe on purpose, I'll try to uh, extract money again. 
And so one should not even be tempted to do that. And so I, I should get rid of that IOU immediately. Uh, again, from the same pasuk in Iyov. Uh, beginning of that same pasuk, if there's a nikri in your hand, put it far away. That's what this is, it's referring to. So the first half of the pasuk is talking about that we already spoke about. is something similar. A kind of a kind of a document of trust or of security. Uh, this could be a case where um, I write a document that says I owe you money because I want to get the property or the money out of my name. For example, uh, if uh, this happens uh, sometimes today in a, a case of divorce or bankruptcy where someone's going to take my money, so I want to get it out of my name so that my spouse can't get it or the people that I owe money to can't get it. See, look, it's not in my name, it's in someone else's name. Even though I'm really going to keep it and I'm not actually going to pay it to you. Uh, so and that's another type of false document in the way the opposite of a where I say you owe me money to make myself look rich. In these cases, I want to make myself look poor so that no one else can come and take uh, and and take that property from me. Uh, but both of these are false documents, and one is not allowed to have them. As well as parua, a repay document is also not allowed to keep in one's house. Okay, this could be relevant today when you, ha- you get a check and you do and you do a mobile deposit. So you keep the you, you deposit it on your phone, but you keep the check and you still have it around. And uh, it, it, then potentially you can go and try to cash it again in another bank. I assume that. That, that doesn't work, although I've never tried. And they do tell you to keep the check around for a while uh, just in case it doesn't go through. But you do have to remember that you already deposited this check and you should not deposit it again. Okay, but I did have this case. Um, <clears throat> someone uh, I, I, uh, someone uh, filed for uh, unemployment uh, in my name. Uh, someone stole my uh, social security number th- last year. And so I got a credit card from the city for unemployment that I could go and spend, um, uh, used to spend it on. And so this is, uh, so I was wondering, should I keep it or not keep it, right? If I keep it, then I may be tempted one day to use it. And so uh, therefore I should destroy it. And then I keep, I kept it just for records so that when I pay my taxes in case my uh, uh, accountant wants to uh, ensure that I did not use it. So I did keep it, but uh, I wondered if it would uh, violate this this prohibition. Okay. Anyway, man de amar shetar parua kol sheken shetar amana o man de amar shetar amana avar shetar shetar parua la dezimnin demashele a peshite te safra. So we saw these two different versions of the uh, of the derasha, uh, and one said it refers to a. Uh, a document that was paid back. So if I'm not allowed to keep a payback document in my house that once was valid, uh, so all the more so a document of trust that was never valid, for sure I should not keep in my house. But the one who applies the pasuk to a document of trust that that was never valid, they might agree that something, a document that was valid but paid back, Maybe I fa- and I in fact can keep it in my house for because there could be a legitimate reason and that is to pay for the fee of the scribe. The way it works is really the borrower should pay the scribe. He's the one that wants to borrow the money. He should pay the scribe to write the IOU. 
But if he's a borrower, probably he doesn't have enough money to pay the scribe. And so what happens is that sometimes the lender will shell out the money for the scribe. And when the borrower pays back the loan, he'll pay back the amount of the loan plus the fee of the scribe. If the borrower pays back the loan but not the fee of the scribe, then the, the lender has a right to hold on to the IOU until such time as he pays for the borrower pays for the fee of the scribe as well. And so therefore he may agree that, you know what, if that's, if, even if you paid back the loan, but you still didn't get, didn't get the fee, it's still valid to hold on to it. The other, the first opinion would say, no, don't do that because it's still a problem that you may come to uh, ask for the entire loan uh, amount once again. Okay, itmar sefer she'enom muga. Amar Rebi Ame Alchiloshim Yom Mutalashoto Mikan Velach Asula Shoto Mishum Shinemar Al Tashken Beohalecha Avla. If you have similar on the similar uh, note about a false document, if someone has a sefer Torah that is not proofread, there are mistakes in it. One should not keep it around for more than thirty days. Um, uh, you can keep it around for 30 days, but not more, because uh, the same pasuk, you, uh, in, injustice should not, should, should not dwell in your tents. Which means today also, if you have a Sefer Torah, and someone finds a mistake, either you have to correct it, would get a scribe to correct it within 30 days, or if it's not usable anymore, and put it in a genizah. But if you leave it in the, in the hechal uh, without correcting it, then someone's going to use it. And then they're going to be reading uh, uh, an incorrect text. And if it's an incorrect text, that may lead to uh, uh, false explanations and false decisions, false halachot based on that. And therefore, uh, it's an obligation to make sure that our texts are corrected. And um, this may be true for text of the Talmud as well. If you have a, a text of the Talmud that's not correct, we may come to incorrect uh, conclusions. And therefore, we should always, as quickly as possible, make sure uh, to make sure that we have the corrected text. Okay. Amar Rav Nachman, Adim Shamru Amana Hayu Devarenu En Neemanim. Moda'a Hayu Devarenu En Neemanim. Okay, Rav Nachman says something we already know, uh, that the witnesses say, we wrote this document, but it was a document of trust. Um, that either you, I, um, you trusted me to hold on to the IOU, even though I didn't give you the cash yet, and I, and I, I never give you the cash, or it was just you know they give me that document so I could look rich, um, even uh, and you know trust me I won't uh, ever um, uh, uh, collect on it. So if the witnesses say that this document, yeah, we signed it, but it's a false document, it's a trust document, they are not believed. That we saw already the reason. But now they, we add another case, that our statement was after a declaration. If someone comes and says, listen, I'm going to be signing a document tomorrow that says I owe, but I'm telling you, witnesses right now, that I don't mean it. What I'm going to say tomorrow is false. And so I'm telling you that from now so that it undermines what I'm going to say tomorrow. So if the witnesses say, yeah, we signed this document, but this document, the lender, the um, borrower said, I don't mean it, um, uh, or whatever the case is. Um, they are also not believed. And it would be the, a similar reason. We're not going to believe. The witnesses at once first said, yes, it's their, it's their signature. Good, so they authenticated the document. We're not going to trust them to undermine the document. That's Rav Nachman. So agree in the case where it's a, a trust document that they say we are not, we don't believe them because they're not allowed to sign. 
a trust, you're not allowed to have a trust document in your house. It's a false loan document. And so they are self-incriminating. So we throw out their testimony that's a false document and it's a good document. But if they say it's a moda'a, that beforehand the, 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 uh, 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 the um, borrower said, um, I'm, what I'm owing, what I, what I say I'm going to owe tomorrow in that document is false. And they t- tells the witnesses that and uh, from beforehand, then the witnesses are believed to say this was a document that was, uh, there was a uh, declaration made beforehand that is believed according to Morvad My ta'ama, hai nitan likateb, vahai lo nitan likateb. And so why? What's the difference between the two cases? Because the document that was signed with a declaration beforehand, why am I making a declaration before that what I sign is not going to be true? Why would I sign in the first place? It must be that I'm signing under duress. There's some kind of pressure that someone's making me sign this. So I'm going to tell them before, listen, I'm going through this thing because they're making me, but it's not going to be true. In such a case, the witnesses are permitted to sign such a document. Such a document is allowed to be written because we want to save the guy from being under duress even though he didn't mean it, and he told the witnesses, and so we can know that eventually the witnesses will come after that thug goes away and say, no, he never meant to sign this. So therefore, it is, in fact, a valid thing that one, it's not a valid document in the sense that you can't collect on it, but it is permissible in some case to write a, a, a document under duress and say a declaration before. But the, the document based on trust is never allowed to be written, and therefore that would be an act of self-incrimination. So that's the difference according to Mor Barav Asher. Alright, good. So now we established uh, that these, the, the, these two, according to Rav Nachman, who says both of these types are no good, the one on trust and the one that was under duress, what about a document that's based on, uh, that's, that's subject to a condition, right? It says, um, uh, you, uh, I owe you money, if uh, such, a, such a condition comes true, if it rains tomorrow, if uh, um, this uh, deal I made goes through, then I'll pay you this, um, uh, this amount of money. So what about that? Is that considered a, you know, a true document or is it another way of uh, undermining the document by having a condition there? So what do we say? The reason why the, 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 the document under duress and the one that based on trust is we don't believe uh, the witnesses to say that because they're undermining the validity of the document and you can't do that. And here, if you're making it, making it on condition, you're also undermining the validity of the document if the condition should not be fulfilled. Or do we consider the uh, the condition to be a separate thing. The document is valid. It's just that there's an additional statement, which is the the oral condition that this document that is valid will only uh, be uh, fulfilled if that condition comes true. But it's not undermining the the document because it could very well uh, be that the condition will be true and then the then the um, uh, uh, document is valid. That's the question. And his answer is, yes, we accept it that if it's on condition and when people come to judgment in such a case, we say, fulfill the condition and then come to judgment and 
we will authenticate the document. So yes, the if it, they say it's on condition, we can believe them and uh, force uh, fulfillment of the document that's uh, if the condition is fulfilled. Ed omer omer Okay, a little more complicated. What if there's two witnesses? And the case we just had was where both witnesses say, yeah, we signed it, but it was uh, it was verbally on condition. But what if we have two witnesses? One of them said, uh, yes, I signed this, um, but uh, but there's a condition attached to it. And the other one said, I signed it, but there's no condition attached to it. Which one are we going to believe? Papa said, listen, what do they have in common? Both, um, both witnesses are agreeing that the, the document is valid. We signed it and this is a good document. So we're going to accept the testimony of both witnesses. It's a valid document. Now regarding the condition, only one said it's a condition and the other one did not say it's a condition. So therefore we're going to reject the witness that said there was a condition because there's only one witness. So we have one witness as a condition versus two witnesses that say that the, the document is valid even though one of those witnesses is the very same person. Nevertheless, we take the agreement of them as the two, and we say the document is valid, and we ignore the condition. Rav Huna is going to reject what a papa just says. And he says, According to your logic, even if both of the witnesses testify that there was a condition, we also should not accept their testimony. Um, even though we said above that we do accept that. Rather, we say, that in the case where there was two witnesses that both said it was on was on condition, we consider that they are undermining their testimony, meaning that their testimony that the document is valid is dependent on they're also adding that there was a condition and therefore it's built in it's all one statement and therefore we accept the uh the condition the condition has to be fulfilled that was what what, what Rav Nachman said and the same would be true if there is only one witness saying there is a condition that he is uh thereby undermining his testimony that it's a valid uh, document. In other words, that we take the entire statement together and we say he is he is uh, testifying that one witness that it's only a valid document if the condition is fulfilled. And so, therefore, you can't separate them like a papa did and say there's two witnesses against one. No, the one witness that says it's on condition uh, makes his validity dependent on that. And therefore, even with one witness we would enforce the condition. And halacha is in fact like this challenge of Rav Yoshua that even if only one of the two witnesses, one witness says it's a valid document unconditionally and the other one says it's valid dependent on the fulfillment of that condition, we would require that condition to be fulfilled. Baruch Amen